0: Genesis, continue to plow through here, and we're, we're into, you know, obviously the heart of the, the story of Joseph, uh, and it's, it's, hopefully you've enjoyed it, hopefully you've gotten a lot out of it today, we'll look at 46 uh, into 47, uh, but just as a little recap, uh, this is where we left off at the end of 45, right, where, where Joseph uh, is no longer concealing himself from his brothers, uh, he moved with emotion at the sight of the repentance uh, that the brothers are demonstrating. He, you know, he, they're, they're embracing. And we talked about that idea of, of the, the power of repentance. and Even that concept of, of how repentance in a sense can change the past. That Joseph looks back on the past and he, and he sees it differently. He sees it not as, with an embittered and heavy heart, uh, for his brothers having sold him into slavery and you know treating him pretty harshly, but he sees God's hand in it. Right? If you look back there in 45, uh, you know pick up at seven, right? That's a good one. It demonstrates. So he says, "But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance." You know, and it's a, in some sense, it's it's not a rewriting of history, but it's. It is revising his perception of history. All right? And that's a, it's an incredible, incredible thing. And that is one of the major themes, as we've touched on, uh, not just of Genesis and the Bible, but specifically the Joseph story. It is all about God's providence. God's providence. And today we'll talk about this idea that, that God's providence, as we'll see in this, these, these, this chapter and a half or so, God's providence secures God's promises. That God makes grand promises to the patriarchs and even to us. And he accomplishes that and he fulfills those promises because he has providence. He has foreknowledge and he has the power and ability to orchestrate the events and accomplish his goal. It's a concept that's similar to the Trinity. Right? It kind of jumps off many pages of the Bible, but it's never like specifically spelled out. But it's one that we are definitely meant to walk away with. When we read the story of Joseph. Uh, but providence is an interesting thing because it does hinge on our perception. All right? Our perception, we see Joseph's perception does change. Right? There are dark times that he has when he's left in prison, uh, you know, to sit and to wait. And you know, when he names his kids, some of it is about you know forgetting the past bitterness, and you know, but perception enables us or hinders us. From seeing God's providential hand at times. You know, this week I had a rough time with my sight. All right? Um, I got in a fight with Michelle. No. I got in a fight with a bee uh, and I lost. All right? Uh, I learned some valuable lessons there, though, uh, in the process. Um, I won't leave it up there. To, I don't want to discuss you guys, right? Uh, but, you know, I mean, sight's a funny thing. And, you, you know, I don't know, as my eyes swelled over the course of Wednesday as I was driving, I realized this is getting progressively more dangerous uh, as depth perception began to vanish. Uh, You know, even as I thought about the scenario, and then you have to inevitably explain why your face looks so disfigured to the various people you're hanging out with. You know, it's it's funny how you, you look at it a bit in hindsight. It's really, really clear, right? Like, you know, on Tuesday night when I first dealt with the bee swarm, uh, I put on protective gear in terms of, like, a uh, recycling bag over my head. Right? But when I went out there Wednesday morning, I didn't do that. And in hindsight, I probably should have had, Twanda just flitched. It's not a bee, Twanda, it's a lie, right? uh, I probably should have had something. In hindsight, it's a funny thing. You know, but God has, God has gifted us with sight. And not just you know, sight with eyes, but sight with perception. Right? And, and he's done that in kind of three different ways. He gives us hindsight, insight, and foresight. Hindsight, insight, and foresight. These things, they play off each other in various ways. But this is, this is an aspect where we are very different than the rest of the animal kingdom. Right? The bee that stung me didn't do that over, oh, hey, that was the guy who the previous night knocked half our swarm into a box. Get him! Right? The bee's reaction was simply reactive. Right? Sees a threat and, and they react. It's not reflective. Right? And that's where we're very different. We have the ability to think. D.A. Carson writes talking here about uh, you know th- this idea of providence. He says human humankind is metacognitive, meaning we can think about our thoughts. You ever think about that? you ever think about the fact that you can sit around thinking about what you're thinking about? (laughs) Other animals do not do that, but we do that. We, We have that ability to look at our past and to relive it. And to ascribe different meaning to it. And to see it from an angle that when we lived it out the first time, we couldn't see and we couldn't understand. And one of the most powerful lessons of the story of Joseph and of Genesis as a whole is seeing the characters, the patriarchs, their families, learn to see life with God's providential hand guiding them. And oftentimes that only happens after they go through very difficult times, very challenging times, and yet they see, you know what, hey, what God said, that did come to true. That was proved to be reality. But not everyone gets that. Not everyone sees them. Not all of us have that perception at times. And the reality is we have to, and we've talked about this many, many times before, we have to learn to be good stewards of our memories. Our memories are not objective, they are highly subjective. The more emotional event we experience, the less reliable our memories therefore are. And we have a tendency to push our memories to extremes. Right? If you played sport when you were younger, you undoubtedly do this. You are way better now in your stories than you ever were in reality. Right? If you've ever had a discussion with the previous generation about their time in life, you know it gets romanticized and catastrophized very easily. When right? They're walking to school both ways uphill. That's not even logistically possible. Trevor does that. Leah just hit her dad. I love it. And that's what happens, and that's what we do, and you know, we all do it, and then we add details that were never happened anyways, like if it was snow. And it doesn't snow in Jamaica, Trevor. Still uphill both ways to school, but we do that. And our minds are, are are very powerful things. And when it comes to our memories, we've got to use that power carefully. You know, John Milton talks about this and You know, he talks about how the mind has the ability to make hell out of heaven and heaven out of hell. And our minds have that ability. And all of it hangs on perception. All All of it hangs on how we perceive, how we frame, how we replay, and how we see in our mind's eyes what has happened in life and why. And the older we get, the more important this is, because the more you amass memories. And your memory has a grand impact on your self-perception. And it has a profound impact on your faith. And we've got to learn to reshuffle our memory decks to prioritize the good memories. We've got to learn to steward them and learn to see in our hearts God's providential hand at work in our lives. Because the more we can get the idea that we get out of Joseph here of, hey, God's got a plan. And God's going to fulfill His promises. And it most likely will not be done the way we think it should be done or could be done. But the more we can internalize and trust Him and see His providential hand, the more we can live lives faithfully that honor Him. Amen? Amen. Awesome. With all that long introduction, Michelle's going to come and read. (laughs) because <laughs> it's got a lot of names, and she's an expert reader. Uh, she'll read for us here our text, 46.1 to 47.12. You can you use your own Bible. Yeah. I read better from it. Okay, okay.
1: okay 46.1 through 47.12. So Israel set out, sent out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will go make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob, and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. The sons of Reuben. Hanuk, Halu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul, The sons of Issachar, Tola, Hua, Jasha, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons Leabor to Jacob in Padan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were 33 in all. The sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shuni, Ezbon, Eri, Arodi, and Eremi. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishba, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber and Melchiel, these were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, sixteen in all. The sons of Jacob's wife Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppum, Huppum, and Ar. <laughs> These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. The son of Dan, Hashem, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilin. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those went to Egypt with Jacob. Those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, The members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians." Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all the father's household with food, according to the number of their children.
0: Awesome. She is way better at that than I am. Let's have a prayer and then we'll look at this. Father, we uh, do pray you help us, God, uh, as we look at your word, uh, to to see your providential hand, God. Mm -hmm. To to be able to to leave here and reflect on our lives and just see how you work and how you bring about about your purpose. You add meaning and direction to us, God. And we pray, God, that 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 hindsight does give us insight and even vision for the future, God, of of how to live and how how to please you. And we ask you to be with us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Alright. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this idea of providence. And let's look at how uh, God fulfills his promises. And gives us hints of the the fulfillment of this. So here's a good quote by this guy, Vernon McGee. Providence is a hidden hand of God in the glove of history. It's a cool way to look at it. right? A hidden hand of God in the glove of history. And I do think one of the challenges with God's providence is that, that hidden aspect. And again, I think one of the challenges as we look at, especially at narratives like, like we have here in Genesis, is the stories cover large swaths of time, 10, 20 years, but we only look at it as a snapshot. And we see, and they look so faithful, and they look so strong, and they look like they see with great clarity God's providence. But a lot of times we we, we miss the 10, 20 years where they had no clue what God was doing. And that hidden aspect. But it's the moments where where we do see God at work, and we see God's hands, that's when we're meant to strengthen our faith. And that's often why, in the course of Israel's history, specifically when they get into Exodus, and for sure into Joshua Uh, those books, they are constantly building altars. Even as as Jacob here stops in Beersheba, it's the same place that his father's had stopped. And it was a place where they were trying to instill into their minds remembering God's past faithfulness. Remember how God looked after us in the past. That will give us faith and hope for the future. You know, flip over to Psalm 105, unless you have phenomenal eyesight and you can read that. (laughs) Psalm 105 is one of these great songs, and there's, you know, there's maybe four or five of them in, in the book of Psalms where the psalmist gives us a complete recap of Israel's history. Yeah. Right. Uh, a, a, a prayer, a meditation put to put to song, uh, again, kind of in some sense, like what we're talking about rewriting their history. You know, here in, in Psalm 105. Well, look at just verses 16 to 23, which is the portion of that psalm that deals directly with what we're looking at here in Genesis. It says there, he, talking about God, called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, to what he foretold came to pass, to the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free. Made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. The Lord made him his made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen. You know, it's a grand recap there, showing us event after event of God acting in history. You know, and the, and the reason I read it, I think, because it's a, it's a, uh, it's a well-rounded approach. I mean, you notice there, there's a, lot that's, there's a lot that's positive, right? And we tend to gravitate towards that. What's the positive? Well, God sent Joseph and gave him wisdom, and Joseph instructed Pharaoh's princes. And, and, and was therefore able to, to, to save and preserve a people and make them fruitful and numerous. But God also sent the famine. And even later on, down there, we read it, right? It's an interesting one, uh, where it even says that, that yes, that it became too numerous for their foes when he, when, whose hearts he turned to hate his people. Well, which is kind of spoiler alert. If you don't know what happens in Exodus. 400 years after this period, that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh is no longer friendly. He's filled with rage and hatred. Who turned his heart, according to the psalmist? God. Again, it's a balanced approach. A lot of times we like to ascribe the good things in life to God and see that as His providence, and we just ignore the bad. And that's a more domesticated and safe God. But the problem is that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, the God we worship, is a God who, yes, brings good, and yes, does preserve and does save, but He also puts us through the ringer at times and challenges us and shakes us to our core with hardships and difficulties, famines and hostility. Is our viewpoint of God's providence big enough to encompass that kind of God? God's providence secures God's promises. And like I said, in this text, we get so many reminders here of some of the great promises that God has made to Israel's history, his family. We begin to see them fulfilled. All right. You know, one of the, the first promises given there to, to Abraham when he begins his journey and leaves his family's land, is that of God telling him, Hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. You know, when we looked at that text in, in, in Genesis 12 2, we all had a little bit of a chuckle, right? Because Abraham would have had to go back to his father and say, God, I'm, you know, father, I'm leaving you because God's told me He's going to make me into a great nation. And Abraham had zero offspring. And he was old. But yet, one of the first promises that God put before Abraham is, Hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your offspring, going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and the skies, the stars in the sky. And one of the reasons the, 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 the narrator of Genesis and the Spirit, I think, inspires it, I mean, you think about, look, there's a lot of names in there. You've got great links to explain all, you know, list them all out. And maybe you've picked it up as we've gone through Genesis. Anytime there's genealogies, it's like a transition passage. It's shifting gears. But the reason that whenever it shifts gears and it provides genealogies is he's trying to draw us back again to Abraham and that promise. And as those transitions have gone from chapter 12 now all the way to where we are now, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And even here with the number 70 being a focal point that's intentional, it's showing that, hey, that promise that God made To Abram of becoming a nation, that's happening. God's fulfilling it. They are growing in number, they are becoming more numerous, just as God said he would do. Chapter 15, verse 13 again, God with Abram, God tells Abram, not just going to make you a nation, but you also need to know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Strangers in a country not their own. Even Jacob, as he, as he speaks with Pharaoh, he talks about the years of his pilgrimage. That's journey language. He's, he knows he's not home. He knows he's on a journey. And even one that's taking him out of the land of promise, kind of back into Egypt, which on face value seems regressive. Right? Abram had come out of Egypt you know, and gone into the promised land. Here, Jacob is having to do that in reverse. Then there's fear in it. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but the, the point is, look, even that negative thing that seems like perhaps a step backwards, that is a fulfillment of God's promise. That is God having told Abram generations before, hey, this is how it's going to unfold. And we see that in our text coming in to, into reality. And third major promise we see fulfilled in this text is one that is really crazy if we step back and think about it. You know, several times, but most significantly there in 22.18 of Genesis, God tells Abraham that that you're being blessed, not just for your own good, but to be a blessing to the nations. Right? And here in our text, what do we see? We get this scene in 47. Where literally, in 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 the Hebrew, Jacob is carried in before Pharaoh. Now think about the power imbalance in this, in this snapshot. Right? Jacob's family was so destitute, multiple times now, they've had to send family members to Egypt to get resources to survive. Because of God's providential hand, Joseph is there, and the entire family comes, and Jacob is the, the patriarch of the, that family, but here he is in front of Pharaoh. Who was regarded as a god, and yet what we have happening is two times in the text we're told Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob can't even walk; he can't provide for his own family. He's had to come into Egypt as as you know refugees, seeking help and support, and yet he is the one blessing Pharaoh. I mean, the text is trying to hit us over the head with a reality here. Where does power really regard, re- reside? Who really is in control? And I think it's an interesting thing that Pharaoh accepts it as well. I mean, in ancient thought, even today, the, the, the greater blesses the lesser. Not the lesser blessing the greater. The lesser has nothing to offer the greater. But here we find someone who on face value is the lesser being the one that blesses Pharaoh. Fulfilling that promise that God had made to Abram a long time ago. That they would be blessed as a people in order to bless the nations. That it wasn't going to be solely about them. But it was about them being a light to the world and helping others. And here we see in our text God arranging that Through Joseph, who started as a slave in his journey into Egypt. And his decrepit old father, who's had a rough life in his own terms. And yet still, he's the one blessing Pharaoh. God's promise. Bringing about the fulfillment of his promises. We see that time and time again in the Bible. My question to you today is, do you see it in your life? When's the last time you you, you did like what Psalm 105 does? Look back on your life. Not just the good, but the bad, the difficult, the ugly, the harsh. And step back and see God's providential hand. Step back and see that... the, the God we worship is a God who, who gives promises and then generations later fulfills And we may look at it and think, man, it's too slow. It's not happening in the, you know, how I want it to happen. All right, we'll talk about that in a second here. But we've got to see that that slowness, again, is, is simply God accomplishing His plan. And the slowness is probably intention. Try to put us in our place. Us to have more humility. But this text, this story, this section, this transition reminds us again of God's providence. You know, practically, what do we walk away with? You know, what do we walk away with when, when, when we consider this? You know, one of the first things is this idea that if we really internalize and believe that God has providential control over our life, that should make us a more obedient people. I mean, think about it, even the, the, the story here, and, and, and Jacob, you know, he, he's, he's skeptical, and then the, 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 the camel's loaded with all the goods, and the carts, and they all come, and he's like, all right, I'm going, right? And then chapter 46, which we read, says Israel set out, but then as soon as he gets to the edge of the land, that's where Beersheba is, mm-hmm. as soon as he gets to the edge of, of, of the, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, he stops. Why? Why does he stop? He knows that the promise for him and his forefathers was all about this land. And though all the signs point towards go to Egypt, all the signs, all the messengers, all the, the, the rescue that's been coming from Joseph, all of that points to, hey, go to Egypt, and yet Jacob stops. And he makes sacrifices And he calls on God. And we don't have in the text what he asked. But God's answer is pretty clear probably what he was asking. Should I go? Jacob in his old age has made many mistakes along the way. But at this point he's figured out, hey, I need to obey God. God's in control. And that doesn't mean I'm going to be sheltered from hard times or difficult times. Fourteen years of hard labor under Laban. Prove that. But you know what? I have to obey God. I have to obey God. That even if all the signs that I kind of see and all the things maybe I attribute to God's hand, maybe they're all pointing this way, but I'm still going to have the humility to stop and think and ponder and pray and seek in God's will, is this what God wants me? We've got to be a more obedient people. How is our obedience? And when we first start following God, it's, it's great, isn't it? Because we have humility. We realize, man, I don't know what to do in life. I've made a mess of my life. And so we obey. But sometimes with time, that trust shifts away from God and back to self. And we become less obedient. More educated, we know more Bible, but we actually embody less Bible in our life. That's a tragedy. Right? Even Psalm 105, and you can take time to read the entire Psalm, but Psalm 105, this grand recast of God's providential hand in Israel's history, and what does it end with? It ends simply, the last verse, after it stops telling the history that God has done all of that, verse 45, that they may keep His precepts and observe His laws. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's like super simple. <laughs> I mean, it's it's forty-five verse psalm. That's you know familiar psalms. That's a long. That's a lot of psalm. That's a lot of retelling. That's a lot of reframing. Detail after detail after detail. How God worked, and the whole summary is, well, why has He done that? So we obey. So we obey. Right, how is our obedience? Secondly, what does God's providence, what does that do in our life? It should make us more fearless. It should make us a lot more fearless. Jacob, at this point, has been—you know—he's become a little bit despondent. If you remember some of his interactions with his kids, uh, it's, you know, the coming and going, it, it, it's all like you know, awaiting his death in a negative sense. I'm bereaved, and if if I must be bereaved more, I'll be bereaved more. He's become kind of fatalistic and despondent, right? But here, as he prays to God and makes these sacrifices, what do we see that comes out of him? It's his fearlessness, right? He's no longer afraid of death. He's kind of revived in many ways in his spirit, right? He's become more, more governed not by fear, but by faith. Fear is gone. He sets out, even in his old age, on another grand journey, right? And even death as it lays before him is not, is, is not something he's approaching with depression. It's something he is faithfully heading towards in the end. And the third thing we see here regarding God's providence is, is, is that it makes us selfless. And I know we've talked about this, but every time I read it, I just can't. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, this is the only time in the Joseph narrative where God specifically reveals something, specifically says something, that God speaks. Right? You think about what he says here uh, as he speaks. Right? He tells him, don't be afraid, which we talk about, which we just, which we just mentioned. And, and he tells him, verse 4, I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. It's another one of those times where, where God makes a promise that will not be fulfilled in, in his lifetime. Jacob's not going to be brought out. Jacob and Joseph's bones will be brought out. But not, not, they, they won't see it. They won't be there. And it's a reminder that, hey, these promises, these promises that God uses His providence to fulfill, they are way bigger than way bigger than us. And I think this is a difficult pill for us to swallow with our hyper-individualistic Western perspective. Because everything in our world and our culture now says that it's all about you. About you being happy, you being satisfied with your life, your needs getting met, you being blessed. I mean, how many of us would still follow God If none of the blessing came on you, but only on two or three generations from now. How many of us would still cling to it? If no benefit trickled into your own life. No good comes. And if you've been a disciple for a while, you have seen people walk away from God. Because things don't work out as they think things should work out. Hard times come. But yet we're confronted time and time again with a God who makes great promises that will only come about after this person is long dead. I mean, Jacob is only going to come out of Egypt 440 years. 430 years from this moment. And yet he's not like sulking about it. He's not upset about it. He's on the Because he realizes it's way bigger than him. And that excites him. That actually moves him. You know, and I think, man, I don't know about for you, I think, man, it's like me, I shared the communion. That, that was one of the things that first drew me to God's kingdom was this idea that, hold on, being part of something that is way bigger than me. Way bigger than just my life. But it's not just about me. It's not just about my life being better. I mean the idea that that that, that my grandkids will in, be impacted by the choices I make. That's, that's awesome. And it's really good for the pride and the self-centeredness. Because it demands self- and as God talks here with Jacob, prepares him to, to go to Egypt, he is giving him that promise that again reminds him that it's not about him. And I appeal to us as we leave today, as you, as you lay in bed tonight. Pray, journal, write a song, rewrite your history. Search and ask God to help you. See how His providential hand has brought you through good times and bad. How He's brought you to the place you are now. And that He's done that for a purpose. And that your life has meaning. That there is a grand plan. That there is a grand design. And He's called you and He's he's blessed you and enabled you to be part of it. And allow that kind of recounting, that that, that reviewing the, the... the replaying of your life's cake. Allow it to strengthen your faith moving forward. And, and, and appeal to you as you move forward, look for these variables we're talking about. Because if we really believe God is his providential control of our life, we will be tremendously more obedient as a people. Because why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to align ourselves with the plan that he's going to accomplish, whether we get on board or not? I don't remember who, but I was talking about this reality with someone this week. I mean, God is a really persistent teacher. He will teach you whatever lesson you need to learn. He will do it either the easy way or the hard way. And the speed with which you get that lesson is determined a lot of times by simply your obedience. And our obedience, a lot of times, is governed purely by our faith. And our faith is greatly shaped by whether or not we see God's providential hand at work in our lives. And I appeal to you, open your eyes and see. Because you'll become a more obedient person, you will become a more fearless person. Because if God is for you, as Paul says in Romans, who can be against you? I mean, that's the appeal that Paul's making from a section of Romans that's talking about the same concept. We have nothing to fear. If God is for us, There is nothing that can separate us from His love. And as we follow Him, remember, it's way bigger than just you. It's way bigger than just me. You're part of something way grander, God's plan of salvation. A God that makes promises to the patriarchs, and really only in first century, you know, with the advent of Jesus, do they begin to reach their complete fulfillment. And even now, we continue to live life following Jesus, awaiting God to complete the whole process. And it may happen in our lifetime, and it may happen a thousand years after our lifetime. But we should have that heart of selflessness that doesn't matter. My task is to follow God and to honor Him in all I do. Amen? Amen. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one for you know, Father, we, we do thank You for, for, for Joseph, for, for Judah, for Israel, God, and just there. You know, they're their stubborn, persistent faith, God. We know at times it was long roads, but there were roads that, that you had, had, had set by your foreknowledge, God. And we pray, God, you help us, God. Help us to have that hindsight, to look back on our lives, God, as, you know, Psalm 105 and Psalm 78, is these texts that show us, God, that we need to do that. We need to be good stewards of our memories, We pray you help us, God, to, to see your hand at work, not just in the good, but also in the challenging, not just in the positive times, but in the dark times, God, the negative moments, but to see your providential plan, God. We pray that as we do that, God, our faith grows, we become a hopeful people, people that anticipate the future. That approach the future with obedient and humble hearts, God, that are just fearless, knowing that no matter what life brings our way, you will be with us just as you were with Jacob, God. We pray that as we do that, God, that you burn off our egos along the way, and you help us to be a selfless people that you can use to bless the world around us, all for your glory. Again, we thank you, Father, we thank you for your great persistence. Your patience, your tolerance, and your kindness. May those things ever spur us on towards repentance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand and sing a very fitting song. How great is our God.